Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thanks so much for joining me today as we continue our Palm Beach Chronicles. We're back for another edition, continuing our journey into finding the real Palm Beach, this time with the gentleman. We have three gentlemen to focus on today. The one who needs no introduction, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. The next, Paul Ilyansky, son of Audrey Emery and a Russian Grand Duke, not to be outdone by Arndt Krupp, the German munitions heir. Oh my, so many connections into our spider webs. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunn's Vanity Fair piece, The Women of Palm Beach, remember he has that whole thread of magnificent with the instant praise for everyone that he's overhearing about. One of these, the one that needs no introduction, as vocalized by our friend Carrie. There with the deep tan and the mustache is Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I don't have to tell you who he is, except that his house for some reason is called the Vicarage. Oh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., he does not need an introduction. He's a legend in his own time and beyond, but we're going to round him out a bit and his time in Palm Beach. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. does live in a home called the Vicarage, The vicarage was built in 1897 for the vicar of the Episcopal Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea. The vicarage was renovated in 1929 and in 1990 will win the prestigious Ballinger Award for Historic Preservation. The vicarage is Palm Beach Island's third oldest home and the first home in Palm Beach to be landmarked. The Vicarage recently sold for $7.35 million. The Vicarage lot is 70 feet by 300 feet. <laughs> so with the sales price of $7.35 million, the new sales price per linear foot of the Vicarage comes in, seriously all, per linear foot at $105,000. Holy cats. The Vicarage is a two-story wood frame and shingle British colonial-style bungalow with five bedrooms, five bathrooms, and about 5,000 square feet of living area. At one time, it was the winter home of actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and his wife Mary Lee. Fairbanks sells the Vicarage in 1989 for $1.73 million. so it looks like we've increased in value multiple millions since that time. Oh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., I'm going to pull this next bit directly from the shiny sheet, the Palm Beach Daily News, in a little piece titled Palm Beach History, The Movie Star Next Door. Decades ago, it wasn't uncommon for island visitors to do a double take when they caught sight of a certain tall and dashing silver-haired Palm Beacher. Was he that swashbuckler from the 1930s? A mad czar? No, wait, Sinbad, right? All of the above. And he was also Mr. Palm Beach. 
That's what some locals called rakishly handsome actor-producer and Palm Beach resident Douglas Fairbanks Jr., whose 75 films from Hollywood's golden age included Sinbad the Sailor, Gunga Din, Catherine the Great, and Little Caesar. Fairbanks lived in Palm Beach during the 1970s and 1980s after having been not only a Hollywood film actor, but also a highly decorated World War II hero and an accomplished producer and multi-talented businessman. You could have synopsized his real-life role as Mr. Palm Beach this way. Six-foot, tan and lean charmer, blue blazer, ascot, billowy silk pocket square. Love's wife, historic lakefront Palm Beach home. Despite fame and high-placed friends, relishes community involvement. Self-depreciating, including when recognized around town. I'm just flattered they remember me at all. Fairbanks lived in Palm Beach with his wife Mary Lee, a gracious philanthropist who attributed the couple's wide circle of friends to quote-unquote manners. The more famous people are, the more time they should have to listen to you and be polite, says Mary Lee. The Fairbankses moved to the island in 1971, armed with Douglas's then 62-year-old wisdom. I only hope to be happy and healthy and in the company of friends. Is there any more to life? The couple soon purchased and settled into a North Lakeway residence that would become their seasonal home for years, the Vicarage. It was so named because an unknown architect built it in 1897 for the vicar of the Episcopal Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea. While the Fairbankses lived there, the Vicarage featured a glassed-in porch opening to a backyard pool with nearby tables canopied by blue and white striped umbrellas. Visitors recalled indoor living areas full of knickknacks and photos of Fairbanks, intimates such as Laurence Olivier, Lord Mountbatten, and Prince Charles. In the library, bound sets of books by French and Italian philosophers accented nearby antique furnishings. There was always a splash of whimsy, too, including at one point a stuffed animal version of Kermit the Frog dangling from a lampshade. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. couldn't afford to take himself too seriously. It wasn't easy being the son of a Hollywood legend, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., who for years was tough on his son, the stepson of silent screen queen Mary Pickford, and later the first husband of Joan Crawford. After his parents split up and his mother blew through her divorce settlement, Fairbanks, as a teen in the mid-1920s, financially supported her and other family members via acting gigs and odd film set jobs. While his 1929 marriage to Crawford busted after four years, his movie career flowered in the 1930s, with starring roles in The Prisoner of Zenda, Gunga Den, and The Corsican Brothers. After romances with Marlena Dietrich and others, he fell in love and married in 1939 Mary Lee Hartford, the recently divorced wife of A&P heir Huntington Hartford. It would be a happy 49-year marriage with three daughters Fairbanks called My Three Graces. Fairbanks was always interested in world affairs, 
1939 and 1940, he publicly opposed isolationism and helped organize the British War Relief Society. In 1941, he served as a presidential envoy to South America. Before Pearl Harbor was attacked, the actor joined the Navy and for the next five years rose through the ranks. At one point, he served under Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten. The Fairbankses would become friends with the British royal family. For his wartime heroics on minesweepers and in commando operations, Fairbanks was awarded everything from the Silver Star to the Legion of Honor and the Croix de Guerre from France. In 1949, he received an honorary knighthood from Britain's King George VI. Well done, dear chum, actor and friend David Niven cabled to Fairbanks, humorously adding, Suggest that is enough, this can be overdone. After the war, Fairbanks managed to resume his film career and form his own production company. By the time the Fairbankses settled into the vicarage, Douglas had become the first film actor to embrace the medium of television. He produced five seasons of Douglas Fairbanks Presents, and he'd become a chairman, director, or consultant on the boards of various companies. Though he and Mary Lee also had residences in New York and London, the vicarage was a, quote, escape hatch from the world's rat race. It's a place where the spirit may unwind, while the eyes untense themselves in contented contemplation of sailboats gliding by, Douglas Fairbanks says. At the vicarage, the Fairbankses played dinner host to urbane Palm Beach friends, European royalty, and Hollywood actors. By 1982, Fairbanks was, among other things, co-chairman for a planned parenthood benefit, an advisor to the then Norton Gallery, and a regular at the annual Coconuts New Year's Eve soirees. When Mary Lee, who helped nurse her cancer-stricken sister, learned of efforts to build an inpatient hospice center in the area, she said, that's the best thing to ever happen in Palm Beach. The Fairbankses became years-long champions in Palm Beach for hospice organizations. Individually or as a couple, they chaired a variety of charity galas. In 1987, when Mary Lee had the flu and Douglas a bronchial infection, they barely needed to ask before Palm Beach friends dropped everything to fill in as hosts of a hospice dinner at the Vicarage, where Fairbanks penned the first volume of his two-volume autobiography. In 1989, Douglas Fairbanks's beloved wife Mary Lee died of cancer. But two months later, he mustered his Palm Beach spirit and took a non-speaking part in a charity benefiting Palm Beach Follies talent show at the Society of the Four Arts. Fairbanks then sold the vicarage and returned to New York. Just before leaving Palm Beach, Fairbanks, who died in 2000, said, I have a lot of great memories concerning this place. He recalled his wife's involvements on the island and modestly added, I just sort of tagged along. From 1991 until his death in 2000, Fairbanks was married to Vera Shelton Fairbanks. The two were wed in New York. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. most certainly will make his impact along this 12-mile stretch of an island, but 
There's another gentleman with all kinds of connections and lots of spider webs to his story. This month of Palm Beach Chronicles really is a gift that keeps on giving. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Dominic Dunn will drop the following precy about Paul Ilyinsky with big thanks to our friend Nina for her vocal delight here. The man in the receiving line, third from the end, is Paul Ilyinsky. He's on the town council. His father was a Russian grand duke who married Audrey Emery, Paul's mother, and his second cousin was the last czar of Russia. I mean, what is there to this story? I'm pulling this next bit so well done from Pete Early, written in the Washington Post. There's a piece called Rich Town, Poor Town. The Rich Town part of this article focuses in on our next gentleman, Paul Ilyinsky. The interesting thing about this particular article, it is from March 16th, 1986, published just before our man Nick's piece. So you're really getting Paul Ilyinsky and his wife real time here, which I think is just a fascinating sort of picture. So well done from Peter Early in the Washington Post. Palm Beach is a virtual oasis exclusively for the wealthy. The 14-mile Golden Isle off Florida's eastern shore is among the least stratified communities in America, according to a demographic study by the Alexandria-based Claritas Incorporated. The average island resident is 63 years old, white, college-educated, retired, Republican, and worth more than $1 million. In Palm Beach, the season is a time for the rich, many from the Northeast, to party. During a two-month period, the island's population swells from 12,500 to 40,000 as the wealthy congregate to play tennis, golf, croquet, shop at Gucci and Cartier on Glittering Worth Avenue, and attend nightly charity balls. Paul Ilyinsky was born in a Rolls Royce, his mother attending an opera in London on January 27, 1928, when the labor pains started, Ilyinsky arrived during the rush home. Ilyinsky is president of the Palm Beach Town Council. He is a dashing man with a confident air and a voice so eloquent that it can make a simple zoning request sound grandiose. Angelica Ilyinsky is a statuesque woman well-regarded for her orchids, skillet canasta, and shrewd political instincts. On a recent morning, it was Angelica Ilyinsky who intercepted an angry telephone call from one of Palm Beach's Grand Dames. The woman had been issued a $50 ticket by police for taking her dog on its morning constitutional on the beach. Her dog, she charged, was being singled out unfairly for punishment. I can assure you, madam, that all dogs in Palm Beach are treated equally, Angela Ilyinsky replied, diffusing the caller's anger. 
The Ilyinskis were born into wealth, just like most of their neighbors. Palm Beach remains an island where nearly everyone is someone, and a person's name always carries a footnote. This is so similar to Dominic Dunn here. Here are a few of these. Oh, darling, you must meet Helen Bohm, head of the International Bohm Porcelain Empire and owner of the Bohm Polo Team. Have you met Mercedes Kellogg, the wife of the serial heir? Oh, there's Janet Annenberg Hooker. She's the media heiress, you know, and the sister of Walter Annenberg, former ambassador to the court of St. James's. What did Dominic Dunn say? Palm Beach people talk about Palm Beach people constantly. It's so true. Back to Pete Early. Angelica's great-grandfather was Samuel H. Kaufman, the founder of the defunct newspaper, The Washington Star. Paul's father was Grand Duke Dmitri of the House of Romanov, the last imperial Russian family. His mother was the daughter of a wealthy Cincinnati industrialist. Let's go ahead and fill in Paul's mom, Audrey Emery, her background into this story. Audrey Emery was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, January the 4th, 1904. Audrey's the youngest daughter of a real estate millionaire, John Josiah Emery. John Josiah marries Layla Amelia Alexander and, whoa, their kids, pretty good marriages. One of Audrey's sisters will be known in marriage as both Mrs. Benjamin Moore and Mrs. Robert Gordon McKay. Audrey's other sister, Leela, twice married also, Mrs. Alistair McIntosh at that party back at Sand Reef, as well in her second name known as the Duchess of Talleyrand. Audrey has two brothers too. One of those brothers, John Josiah Jr., marries Irene Gibson Post, daughter of Charles Dana Gibson, and also a niece of Lady Astor. This would be Nancy Astor, included in all of the story that unfolded over the last few weeks. The Emerys are an influential and wealthy family, very, very well-connected. After Audrey Emery's father dies, her mother will remarry. Audrey's stepfather is a son within the British peerage, but it is after the death of her mother in 1953 that Audrey inherits $40 million in a real estate fortune. There's Paul's mother, Audrey Emery. But now we're going to talk about son of a Russian grand duke. Back to Pete Early. Ilyinsky's father was a blue blood, but not wealthy. Grand Duke Dmitri was booted out of Russia in 1916 by the imperial family after he helped murder the infamous monk Grigory Rasputin. Ironically, the banishment saved Dmitri from slaughter during the Bolshevik Revolution. Paul Ilyinsky was raised by a nanny in France and then England while his parents traveled. He explained, I didn't grow up thinking that I was better than anyone else. I grew up being told constantly that I wasn't as good as anyone else because my father was a simple soldier who had married a very rich woman. And the truth was that I wasn't as good as many of my peers, and deep down, I knew that. In 1937, his parents divorced, and Ilyinsky was brought to the United States by his mother, and enrolled in Woodbury Forest Preparatory School in Virginia. 
One morning, several senior students cornered him. Are you really a Russian prince, one demanded. Ilyinsky snapped to attention. No, sir, I'm a Woodbury Forest cadet. Ilyinsky explains, I craved to be like everyone else. I wanted them to like me because I was a person, not because of my title. When Ilyinsky was 16, he lied about his age and joined the Marines. The grunts called him Ski, because no one could pronounce Ilyinsky. Paul Ilyinsky was finally just one of the guys. Palm Beach helped mold Angelica Ilyinsky as a child. She recalls, We were trained for the best colleges in America, but also were taught in school how to pour tea and host parties. It was very much an elite lifestyle. Angelica Ilyinsky doesn't recall her childhood as particularly happy, especially when her parents divorced. Believe me, just because you're born with money doesn't mean that you don't have to prove yourself to your peers when you're growing up. You do. A few weeks before high school graduation, Angelica Ilyinsky and two girlfriends were expelled for accepting an innocent car ride from three boys. It was something proper Palm Beach ladies, quote unquote, did not do. Her parents sent her to France for two years. She met Ilyinsky when she returned and attended a Palm Beach party. It was love at first sight, she says. Three months later, they eloped. This would be Paul Ilyinsky's second wife. They elope Angelica and Paul in 1952. The newlyweds took a one-month honeymoon to Haiti. When they returned, Paul Ilyinsky opened a Palm Beach photography studio bankrolled by his mother. The couple bought a house next to the Pulitzers, and before long, the Ilyinskys' children were playing with Caroline and John John Kennedy. In the early 1960s, however, the Ilyinskys began thinking about leaving Palm Beach. Recalls Angelica, I don't think that Polly and I would still be married if we had stayed in Palm Beach. Our friends were all getting divorced, and we were afraid it was catching. People were bored. It wasn't a healthy environment for young couples. There were other pressures. They felt they could no longer afford Palm Beach. Says Angelica, this is a dream world. We felt our children had to see what America was really all about. We wanted them to go to baseball games, to see poor people. The Ilyinskis moved to Cincinnati, where Paul went to work for his uncle, managing an office tower. They stayed 18 years until their children were on their own. Then they hurried back home, quote-unquote, to Palm Beach and the lifestyle they love. The Ilyinskis live in a house worth approximately $2.7 million, filled with Russian heirlooms. They employ a live-in maid, a full-time captain for their 72-foot burger yacht, and also support Ilyinskis' childhood nanny, now 92 years old, who lives in Norway. They belong to the Bath and Tennis Club, which excludes Jews, according to two members. There are no blacks living in Palm Beach and is considered by many to be the most prestigious of the island's clubs. Paul Ilyinsky's days are spent at City Hall, aboard his yacht, at the club, or tinkering with a huge model train layout that fills two rooms of his home. Angelica works at the public garden once a week, 
serves on several local advisory boards, and plays cards each afternoon. The Ilyinskis are proud of their pristine isle. It has been pictured unfairly in the past, both say, because of such highly publicized scandals as the divorce of publishing heir Herbert Pulitzer Jr. and his wife Roxanne. Most island residents are not much different, Paul Ilyinsky contends, from people living in places like Bethesda or McLean. Agnes Ash, publisher of the Palm Beach Daily News and 20-year veteran of Island Society Watching, agrees that there is probably no more or less scandalous behavior in Palm Beach than in any community. The difference, she says, is that the super-rich can afford more outrageous scandals. Quote, Decadence is expensive. It's hard to live a decadent lifestyle on the cheap. Unquote. The whole idea of this town, continues Agnes Ash, is not to do anything too controversial, because you're supposed to be having a vacation. This is why, Ash explains, Palm Beach's growing Jewish population doesn't fuss about discrimination at clubs. This resort attitude, quote-unquote, also explains why golf carts have the right-of-way on island highways, why trash is collected five days a week at back doors, and why waiters, store clerks, and even the Palm Beach police are embarrassingly polite. Palm Beach is supposed to be perfect. There is no hospital, nursing home, or even a waste treatment plant on the island. The sewage, sick and infirm, are sent to the mainland for treatment. Ash concludes, Palm Beach is kind of a pre-heaven for the wealthy. The first party that Paul and Angelica Ilyansky attended during December was a Christmas buffet, and dance for town employees at a local mission. The gala, however, didn't really qualify as one of Palm Beach's official social functions because none of the town employees live on the island or belong to its social set. The Ilyinskis would make their official debut the next night at a black tie gala at the very same mansion, but with a much different crowd. Ilyansky was the only town council member to attend and stay late at the town Christmas party. The couple mingled with the police officers and sanitation workers with the enthusiasm of hungry insurance agents. Paul Ilyansky gasped between trips to tables. God, I love these people. Having them respect me is important to me. Are the rich really different? Paul Ilyansky finds the question irritating. Come on, he replies. Okay, we are smarter. Look, I've made some money on my own, you know. A terrible lot of money, as a matter of fact. I did it because I was smart enough to hire smart people. That's the advantage, my friend. You can afford the best advice in the country when you are rich. Angelica Ilyansky will add, People are people, but when you have money... You know more people of influence. They help you and you help them. You also know how to make the system work for you. Do the rich bear more responsibility for the poor? Angelica responds, of course. Paul chimes in, but let's be blunt. I'm not a good enough Christian to jeopardize my way of life, if you know what I mean. 
I'm certainly not going to give it all to charity. The Ilianskis say they give $10,000 a year to charities. Angelica continues, Rich people do have problems. Insecurity. You want the little people to like you for what you are, not for what you have. Control. Our parents used their money to control us. All parents do. Listen, you pay a price for money in this world. The family fortune can take on a life of its own. Protecting the fortune is more important than protecting the family. But, says Paul, let's face it, given a choice, who wouldn't take life with wealth? Quite an interesting profile in that piece. Again, Rich Town, Poor Town, the opposing part of that Pete Early article was going across the bridge to a very different way of life for other Florida residents that do not live in this Palm Beach pre-heaven bubble. And I guess that's probably true, like given a choice, who wouldn't take life with some wealth? But wow, at what price happiness? We're going to come back with one other story, kind of interesting here, about Arndt Krupp. His time spent a little bit differently. Dominic Dunn and his The Women of Palm Beach will introduce Arndt Krupp this way with big thanks to Melissa for her vocal talent. The guy with the pale pink lipstick and the plucked eyebrows and that big diamond ring in the color photograph in the window of cones on Worth Avenue is Arndt Krupp, the German munitions heir. Last year, he gave a big party for the Queen of Thailand. But nobody has seen him this year. A few interesting things here. Dominic Dunn does publish this piece April of 1986. And a little investigation reveals that Arndt Krupp passed away May 8th, 1986, at the age of 48. Let's fill Arndt in a little bit here with our brush strokes. Krupp was the German heir to the very large Krupp dynasty, right? Steel, artillery, ammunition. Whoa. Oh my, what a story to his life. I found a wonderful biography from James J. Conway from strangeflowers.wordpress.com. Again, all sources can be found at doneanddone.com. Let's fill in a little bit about Arndt's life here. Again, from James J. Conway, published May 8, 2011. Born in Berlin in 1938, Arndt was the only son of Alfred von Bolen und Habach and his wife, Annalise. He almost never was. Alfred's mother, Bertha, now there was a piece of work, apparently offered Annalise 100,000 marks to have the child aborted. For the Krupps, money was no less a weapon than the armaments produced in their factories, which had decimated a generation. After the child was born, Bertha upped the ante and presented Annalise with a contract. It offered Annalise one million marks to divorce her husband, though it's not even clear if she ever saw the money. It was an obscene proposition, which would have its echo in Arndt's lifetime. The Krupps, enthusiastic supporters of the Nazis, were keen consumers of slave labor, working thousands of prisoners, predominantly Jewish, to their death. 
After the war, Alfred was convicted of crimes against humanity at Nuremberg, though he served just three years of a projected 12-year sentence and got the family firm back. It's hard to imagine a worse start in life than the gallery of grotesques who made up Arndt's family. His schoolyard friends were well aware of Arndt's background and that his father had been designated a war criminal. Acting out against the men of steel he was meant to emulate, Arndt pumped up the fabulosity. Concerned letters from his boarding school mentioned bleached hair, perfume, and makeup. He was encouraged in all this by his smothering Muddy, who delivered news supplies of cosmetics as well as enlivening one carnival by dressing Arndt as a lobster, complete with glowing feelers. Arndt, for his part, bribed his school friends to be nice to his mother when she visited. Arndt was scarcely shaping up to be a captain of industry, while Alfred was under government pressure to turn the vast family business into a listed company. And so one evening in 1966, Alfred and his adjutant more or less bullied Arndt into renouncing his inheritance, haranguing him into the early hours of the morning. He was paid off with an income which, while enviable, was a fraction of the firm's value. So the deal on this, Arndt does give up his inheritance in exchange for $2 million every year. The corrupt fortune is billions and billions and billions and billions, so yes, very much a fraction of what Arndt would have inherited or the firm's value. Returning to Conway, at least it took Arndt off a career path he never really wanted. He became a free-spending man about town, a gossip column fixture. There were heavy hints about his sexuality, with allusions to his great-grandfather Fritz, who took his life at the beginning of the 20th century after newspapers threatened to out him. So it was something of a surprise when Arndt married a minor princess, Henrietta von Ausberg, on Valentine's Day, 1969. His warm-natured wife seemed genuinely to have loved her husband, tolerating his long absences, numerous affairs, and Annalise's vicious, controlling jealousy. This would be Arndt's mother. Although in later years, they spent little time together, their unlikely union lasted, on paper at least, until Arndt's death. Soon after the wedding, like Webster's Dictionary, Arndt and Hetty were Morocco-bound. Visitors like Yves St. Laurent, Jean-Paul Belmondo, and Mick Jagger made their Marrakesh home an essential stop on the jet-set circuit. Otherwise, Arndt secluded himself on his yacht in his Austrian country mansion, or later at the Palm Beach house, which he renovated at huge expense. If he entertained, it was usually alongside his mother. Henrietta was rarely in the picture. Arndt's heedless expenditure extended to his charitable works, including hospitals and other facilities in the Philippines and Thailand. In 1982, he was welcomed into the Catholic Church by Manila's archbishop and prominent opponent of Marcos, Cardinal Sin, and after all these years, what simple pleasure his name still affords. 
In Manila, Arndt would also undergo plastic surgery. Annalise used to tell her teenage son, you're so young, you're so beautiful, you're so rich, but Arndt's efforts to stay young and beautiful left him looking cartoonish, specifically a cartoon by the New Yorker's William Hamilton. The surgery would prove lethal. Arndt had developed jaw cancer, and he was informed that further cosmetic intervention would kill him. The advice was in vain. Toward the end, he was apparently masking the pain with heroin hidden among the books in his Palm Beach library. His mother kept the world, including his wife, at bay. Arndt's physical decline was accompanied by bizarre behavior even more out there than his upbringing might have foretold. There had already been signs of galloping megalomania. At the Rio Carnival, Arndt spent 100,000 marks on an Aztec emperor costume, and he was once photographed on his yacht with an imperial wreath and scepter. He was constantly surrounded by a retinue, as he was even in his school years when concerned letters home referred to Arndt's court, quote-unquote, fellow students bought as companions. Later, his entourage was an assortment of rent boys, jet-setters, and non-aligned hangers-on. He dressed his servants in operetta uniforms, and as his grip on reality loosened, he elevated members of his retinue to the status of minister and gave out bogus medals, which also lavishly decorated his own chest. Arndt commissioned a portrait of himself as a king complete with crown, sword, and scepter. The queen painted at his side was not his wife, but his mother. More than anything, Arndt's decline resembles Michael Jackson's delusional, taste-free cult of self, which saw him enthroned as benevolent, surgically perfected, regal, weighed down by decorations. Remarkable footage shows an almost unrecognizable Arndt, wigged and painted, revealing a real Catholic order in recognition of his charitable work, accompanied by his wife. It was his last public outing. Six months later, the last Krupp was no more. Oh, the gentlemen of Palm Beach, Douglas Fairbanks, Paul Ilyansky, Arndt Crump. And these are only three. We have so many stories to get to. These gentlemen, just like the ladies before, were too good to leave in the archives. Thank you, thank you so much for listening today. I can't wait to be back with you on Saturday. Meet me at midnight for the next Palm Beach High Society drop of Done and Done. If you want more to your journey in the meantime, don't forget patreon.com Done and Done is where you will get all the goodies, ad-free episodes and bonus episodes. We did a little bit of a throwback this week with an extra bonus with our friend Andy Bellotti from Astrology with Andy, we investigated the natal chart of legendary actress Lana Turner. Also, last week we had a not done yet about Taboo, the legendary nightclub and hotspot in Palm Beach as well. 
goodness. We try to keep it all connected, even though it might not be linear. Oh, investigators, what a ride we're on. I do appreciate you being here on this journey. All things Dominic Dunn. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Your kind reviews, telling your friends about us, your emails, for supporting us on Patreon. Just all y'all, all the best, all the time. Until we meet again, my friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.